Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, do you remember the time we were in Montana for a, a business trip? And it was a really stressful, um, heavy decisions were being made, stressful period in our lives. And do you remember we went to the the local grocery store to get snacks for our hotel room for the couple, two or three days we were going to be in Montana. And I was assigned to get like chips or pretzels or crackers or something. And I went to the chip aisle and I just stood there and I froze. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember that vaguely. I that's can't say I remember the freezing up at the choices, but I do because that's a weird thing to not be able to make a decision like that on something simple. But so that was, I remember at the time I, I blamed it heavily on the altitude and dehydration, which probably played a factor. But I also think there was some decision fatigue there. We were making big life-altering decisions, big career decisions, and I had had too much thinking, too much decision-making going on in my head, and I locked up. Mm. So, decision fatigue. That's what we want to talk about today. Uh, decision fatigue and the impact on willpower. You know, we make thousands of decisions in the course of the day. I had a really serious conversation about this with one of the gentlemen in our Shout Sobriety program who had done some research, he had read about it, um, and and I, I wish I could um, properly attribute this to the sources that he was sharing with me, but it was a conversation over coffee and I don't remember where he got all this information, but it, it sounded very credible to me at the time and it certainly makes sense. He talked about the fact that we make thousands of decisions during the course of the day, I mean, starts with what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat for breakfast? What do I need to do to get the kids off to school? What's the first thing I'm going to work on at work? You know, little things, big things, trivial things, monumental things, but just decision after decision after decision all day. We make all these decisions and then at the end of the day, we we try to exert some control over the decisions that we have left yet to make, like... Am I going to drink or am I not? Or how much am I going to drink? Or or am, am I going to eat that bowl of ice cream after dinner? Or am I going to, you know, abstain from dessert altogether? And it, it's just, it it's very interesting. And there's been research done on the fact that you're trying to make these decisions at the end of a long day when you're physically tired, you're mentally tired, but you're also experiencing this decision fatigue because you've made a zillion decisions already. So how am I going to make a good one when it comes to these things? There, you know, every alcoholic I've ever had conversations with will talk about the fact that, gosh, in the morning, especially the morning after drinking and, and feeling regret regretful about the drinking, they're just determined. I am not going to drink tonight. That's it. I'm not doing that again. And then by the end of the day, they've completely changed their mind and they've got a glass of wine or a glass of whiskey in their hand and they can't figure out why. I think this is why. Does this make sense to you? Absolutely. I uh, One of my favorite podcasts I listen to is Happier with Gretchen Rubin and her sister. Um, 
And they often talk about the abstainer and moderator. She has a lot of like little theories behind it, and a lot of it is the research that you show that as your day goes on, your willpower decreases, and so just staying away from something and saying no to like sugar or alcohol or tobacco, like that is just so much easier than trying to moderate it. Dole it out in little doses, be maintaining small amounts, so that is um, right up my alley. Yeah. It's yeah. kind it, of, I think, a personality between you and I, abstainer, moderator in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 an interesting twist on this because, you know, what I what I was talking about is just our we make so many decisions that we can't make good decisions at the end. But the point that you're making is very very valid. Um, you can either say yes or no, or if you're going to say how much am I going to allow myself, that's infinitely harder than just saying yes or no. Right, and that the. The point behind that is that it just cuts out that decision. It just cuts mm-hmm. out that choice altogether. Because yeah. it's something you struggle with. They said it's just easier to say no altogether and keep it away from you than it is to try to say no once in a while, but yes once in a while. That's what makes food addiction so much harder because you can't say no to food. You have mm-hmm. to eat. And so you're forced into that moderator mode. You can say, I'm not going to eat you know, added sugar. And that's certainly something that I've worked on over the years and make it that same yes or no decision that you can make for alcohol or or other drugs um but you can't not eat so that i I think you know that that makes battling a food addiction just all the more diabolical but yeah so we get into this decision fatigue situation and you know i was thinking about how this applies to a lot of the things that we are taught to do and that I know you and I try to do. And a lot of the people that we um, interact with have, do, do these things and have these things in their lives. Think, things that we know are healthy and that they're good for our mental health as well as our physical health. Things like meditating or yoga or taking a walk in nature, listening to music, riding a bike, breath work. All of these kinds of you know self self-care um, ideas and practices, they have one thing in common. If, if you're doing them right, there's no decisions involved. If you're meditating, you know, I, I don't know a lot about meditating, but I, I, I have heard increasing numbers of people recently say, you know, everyone thinks to meditate, you have to completely clear your mind. Well, that's not necessarily the case. There are ways to do it without completely clearing your mind, but you're certainly not sitting there and weighing the pros and cons of a decision. You're trying to stay within the the meditation practice. Maybe it's a mantra meditation. Yoga, same thing. You're focusing on your body, the, the stretching, the, the moves that you're making, listening to the instructor. You know, if, if you're uh, working on breath work, the same thing. Hopefully, if you're out in nature taking a walk the reason you take the walk in nature is because you're looking around you're listening to the sights and you're trying not to make huge life-changing decisions so i just think it's very interesting that the things that we do to try to get away from our addiction or the turmoil that's been caused by addiction are things where hopefully we're not forcing ourselves into 
decision making one after another after another. We're getting away from that those routine decisions that we have to make around the house or at work and um, freeing up our mind. And that just that just shows the power of what this decision fatigue is all about. If the things that we do for self-care oppose are, are the opposite of decision making, then obviously all the decision making we do is challenging. And um, if, if you're trying to get sober and you don't find a release from the thousands of decisions we make every day, um, it makes getting sober infinitely harder. I want to talk about the alcohol-related decisions that we have to make just to show how when you're consuming alcohol and you're trying not to consume alcohol or you're trying to control how much alcohol you're consuming, you're just adding to this pile. If we can agree that just standard life without alcohol involves making thousands of decisions every day and that making all those decisions is fatiguing and and causes us you know challenges especially toward the end of the day then when we pile on top of the regular decisions the alcohol related decisions we we got no chance i mean we're making sobriety or just a healthy lifestyle almost impossible so let's talk through all the alcohol related decisions that someone who is questioning whether or not they have a drinking problem um, which if you're listening to this podcast, you either are someone who is questioning whether or not you have a drinking problem or you know someone who is questioning whether or not you have, they have a drinking problem. The first one is obvious. Am I or am I not an alcoholic? Um, anyone who has gotten to that decision point, gosh, I've got to decide if, I, if I'm an alcoholic or not, knows the mental gymnastics involved with weighing the, that decision. I mean... You saw me go through that for years. Do you remember? I do remember. It was very challenging. You got dragged into listening to me try to make that decision over and over. Yeah. Was the decision for you easier? Like you just knew I was an alcoholic and shut up. Why do you keep questioning this? I I guess because you questioned early on before I feel like you slipped into that, maybe that crossed that other side of being an alcoholic, but you certainly abused it and medicated with it. I just knew it caused a lot of problems, so I thought, well, if it's causing a lot of problems and turmoil, why don't just get rid of it? Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of the second question on my list. Sorry. Wait, no, you led right into it. Whether you're willing to talk about the alcoholic word or, or not, before you get there, there's that question, is this normal? Is, you know, are the people around me drinking the same way? Is this normal, what I'm doing? Is this getting worse? You know, all of a sudden, I don't seem to be able to get along with my spouse anymore. And for many of us, we look for any other reason other than the alcohol as to why that could be happening. Um, but eventually, you've got to point to the fact that my relationship's getting worse. Nothing else has changed except, oh, I'm still drinking or I'm drinking more now. So is this getting worse? That's a, a, a decision you've got to make that really, really weighs um, bringing it back to the loved one of the alcoholic for, through the eyes of the alcoholic is is my is my nagging or is my nagging wife to blame? Is this just bitchery I have to deal with as opposed to is this alcohol? And boy, I gotta tell you, I've not met 
an alcoholic who's in a troubled relationship who hasn't deflected to that question. Um, I'm not going to look at, you know, don't look at what's in my hand or what I keep pouring down my gullet. Um, I'm going to look over here and see if this is the reason this person I'm married to is the reason that uh, we can't seem to get along and that there's a problem. Did you ever question yourself, Sherry, whether it was your nagging or um, just your attitude and personality that was causing problems? Or did you just always know it was the alcohol? Well, I knew that I, I feel like I knew I played a slight role in that because of the kind of the rebellious inner teenager in you that maybe I did, you know, complain a little too much. And so then you would be like, ha ha ha, I'll show you I'm an adult. And so maybe I did play into that or, um, you know, you tried to drown your sorrows and drowned out my voice with drinking. So I did blame myself a little bit. I don't think I blame myself for the first few beers that you opened, you know, those were all your choices. But when things were getting heated and tense, I'm sure that my my mouth played a little into the uh, the consumption amount. Of course, now we know that the alcohol was to blame for all of it. It was mm-hmm. to blame for the things that I said when I was drinking, and it was to blame for the things that you said when you were drinking because you were reacting to the irrational, and that's not a normal situation for a human to put themselves in over and over again and so when you would nag or or get or say things you regretted it was that was the alcohol's fault too had uh had the alcohol not been in our lives neither of us would have been talking to each other that way but it is interesting that you and we hear that a lot we hear a lot of people who say you know i've got my part in this and and i blame myself because i've got a short temper and it just always, whenever we hear someone say that, it makes me think, well, my, my guess is the spark of that temper was the alcohol. And, yeah. And you probably are very well capable of controlling your temper if you're not in a unreasonable situation. So you're deciding whether or not you are at fault for the drinking of someone else, uh, that's a decision that can really weigh on you. What about the impact of the kids S- sitting around and thinking, gosh, is this... This alcohol consumption that's going on having an impact on our children. And certainly for parents, that's the kind of decision that's going to weigh heavy because the last thing you want to do is have any kind of negative impact on your kids. I know that's one that, that you struggled with, right, Sherry? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I could tell that it was impacting them, whether it was just my tense mood or your tense mood, or the lack of participation, even if there were no harsh words, or the inconsistencies of your behavior in the evenings and your tolerance level. Sometimes you'd be joyful, sometimes you'd be irritable. Yeah. These next few decisions weigh heavily on the drinker, and and it's a daily battle. It's a constant thing. When can I start drinking? What will I drink when I do start drinking? Is this a, you know, for me, that would have been like, is this a beer night or am I going to hold off until later? And then when I do drink, I'm going to drink vodka. Um, is there enough? Boy, my my favorite book, my favorite alcoholism memoir is Caroline Knapp's Drinking a Love Story. 
And she does as good a job as anyone I've ever read of describing what it's like when you're in your addiction and you're at a social setting and you're not sure if there's enough wine at the table for dinner because you know what you need and you've got to share it with the other people around and how stressful that is. So that question of is there enough, that might, I mean, to shoot to you, Sherry, that might sound like a silly thing to worry about, but it's a very real thing for for the alcoholic. Can I pace my, <coughs> pardon me, can I pace myself? I'm at, I'm at this social setting and I notice not everyone around me <laughs> drinks like me. Can I keep this under control enough that no one will notice how much am I, I'm drinking? Um, and then for the perspective of the loved one, will this person I'm will, with, will this person I'm married to overdo it or not? Um, how many times did we go out and was that, you know, a stressful question weighing on your mind, Sherry? Was that a common thing? Or every time. Every time. Okay. <laughs> there was always that conversation about the drinking and the driving and the planning and all. Then, and when we've talked about boundaries with some of our um, group members in our Echoes of Recovery, I often just laugh because there is no boundary with a drunk. Mm-hmm. When you're drinking, like, you don't remember what you've said, too. So how many times I had to argue for fighting the wheel out of your hand after a situation of a, you know, social event. Because the plan was all along, you know, either you were going to just have a couple beers or I was going to drive. And then your mind changed. Yeah, sadly. That's really, really pathetic. But I think all too common. Mm-hmm. How about how about this one? You have to decide, especially, I think especially as the loved one, certainly as the drinker, this is something that you think about on the morning after having had a lot to drink. Does anyone know? I can't tell you how many times I woke up after, maybe it was a work function, and I would think, oh God, there's parts of last night I don't remember. That's not good because I was with my employees or my boss, and does anyone, did anyone notice um, and then having to just spend hours going through the parts of the night that were were flickering and mm-hmm. trying to decide um, you know whether whether you made an ass of yourself or not and I think though that's a morning after uh, decision making process for the drinker but for the loved one that's an in the moment you know you must be looking around sometimes when I'm acting like a buffoon going gosh is everyone noticing what a drunk asshole my husband is <laughs> uh yeah and oftentimes i would kind of go to a different part of the um room or the building just so i didn't have to um kind of watch it happen and then i wouldn't be then not being around you i felt like would make me not be questioned or looked at, or maybe they were like, oh, well, look how Matt's acting because Sherry's not around watching over him or something. I, I like that. I like how independent you've always been. Like, oh, if he's going to be an ass, I'm going to get away from him so I don't get dragged down into And it also brought my mood down it. and sure. worried me, and it rose my anxiety. Now, that's not a lesson that I learned early on. Yeah. But. I like that. Here's one that you and I never had to deal with, but that is very, very much... Uh, real in the real time and that is day drinking work drinking during covid so many people figured out that they could just put their booze in a cup and 
even when they're on their video calls all day uh, for remote working, they could drink through that. And then, the, you know, that brings in a whole nother area where you've got to moderate, you've got to decide what you're going to drink. I know I met a uh, distributor, an alcohol distributor, who was explaining that this has a lot to do with the the rise in sales of these seltzers, hard seltzers, which is chipping into the, you know, every category of, you know, from hard liquor to, to wine, especially this person happened to be in the wine side of distribution for the company that she worked for. She was talking about how much less wine she was selling, but how much more, um, what's the White Claw and the and then the other hard seltzers that have come out because they're low calorie and low alcohol content. So, so many people think they can just drink them all day long while they're working and no one will notice. But I got to tell you, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who that's gotten them jammed up at work because eventually work does notice. And, you know, that's just an, another set for the drinker of decisions they have to make. What am I going to drink? When am I going to start? How am I going to keep it under? Oh, I got that two o'clock meeting. I got to make sure I only have a couple, you know, I'm only going to have two before the two o'clock meeting and then I'll have two more from 2.30 to four because then I'm just working at my de- my desk and I won't be on video call. Like that's how the alcoholic mind works. I know I haven't experienced this because obviously I quit drinking long before COVID, but I can tell you planning that out, that level of meticulous planning is 100% involved in being a drinker and being a day drinker during COVID while you're on video calls has got to be excruciating. You're shaking your head. It just, just sounds horrifying. Yeah. just sounds horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you've got, you know, you've got these mantras and sayings that, again, as the drinker, just makes it harder to abstain or harder to moderate, harder to do the right thing. You know, you've got things like work hard, play hard. That was that was one of the sayings that really, that I glommed onto. And, um, you know, so any, anytime I could sneak some playing hard into the working hard period, I would do it. <coughs> I, I was in sales for a long time, so I was out to lunches and dinners with customers and Boy, if I was with a customer that ordered a drink, an alcoholic drink, I was game on. Let's go. And, you know, another one, it's five o'clock somewhere. You hear people say that all the time. So, yes, I know that I'm trying to white knuckle it until cocktail hour um, and not drink until then. But, but boy, if I, you know, there's there's some kind of a justification like, oh, it's five o'clock somewhere. Loosen up a little. Well, sure, I'll start drinking at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Good point you just made there, that it's 5 o'clock somewhere. So there's just all kinds of kind of cultural cultural spin that we put on it to justify drinking at any time of the day. But those are, it just adds up. These are all the decisions you have to make. Oh, I was planning to not drink until after work today. But gosh, my customer's drinking, so I think it'll be okay. And it just weighs. It's just another in the the thousands of decisions that we have to make every day. What about the financial decisions? There's certainly lots of those associated with drinking. You know, I don't know a drinker who hasn't at, at least occasionally sat back and counted up how much money that they're spending directly on alcohol. For a while, Sherry, I had a kegerator here in the house. And I justified that 
a kegerator for those who don't know is a like a one third size refrigerator that holds a keg of beer. You, I mean, you you have a couple of options. You can get the the half barrel, which is the full size keg that you would see in a bar, or you can get smaller. Um, I guess they're quarter barrels or eighth barrels. I don't know, but these they call them torpedoes because they look like a torpedo, I guess. But they the kegerator would fit two or three of those. So you had beer options if you got those, but I always got the half barrel, um, and went through it at an alarmingly <laughs> quick rate. It was like we owned a bar at the speed <laughs> with which I could go through a half barrel. But the justification for that was money. I got a great deal from a local brewery, uh, on the half barrel and you know, the kegerator paid for itself pretty quickly. <laughs> I think you also threw in the environmental factor. Oh yes, of, like less you don't recycling. Have less recycling. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't the environmental factor. It was just the less recycling. So then you didn't have to have a clang and chinking sound going out to the rec- carrying the recycling. Oh out. yes, all kinds of justification. But even with my money saving brilliance <laughs> of getting a kegerator, it was still really expensive to drink. Because and I'm just so talking much. about in for this decision. I'm just talking about. The actual money spent on booze that's brought into the house and consumed into the house. Yeah. Then, you know, you've got to consider the financial impact of the decisions that you make while drunk. There was that one time when, I think we've talked about this, but when I I, I was heavily into IndyCar racing for a while and there had been a driver who died and they were doing fundraising for his family and one of the ways that they were fundraising for his family was buying t-shirts and through like screams and sobs and tears, I bought t-shirts for everyone in the family that were, they were probably like 50 bucks a t-shirt instead of the $8 that they were worth. Yeah. But I insisted that we help this IndyCar driver's family. He was young and he had young kids. And (coughs) the worst thing was, poor decision making went, was the kid had a nickname that had a curse word in it, ass. And so half of us got t-shirts that had the word ass in it. Yeah. Badass. Like, yes, badass. Our kids are walking around with <laughs> no, badass I, t-shirts. I think you may have just gotten the oldest one that, and that's the sleep shirt. Yeah. And it's, the the, the shirt, but my the, shirt's a nice color, so I still like to wear it. I mean, like it was a nice gesture, but, gesture, but you're... But still, this is the, what happens when one we're drinking. One or two t-shirts would have been more than enough. Yeah, this is what happens when we're drinking. There's a 150 bucks down the drain when it, you know, when you add the shipping or whatever. That's why Vegas does so well, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's why they, they, I don't know if they do it to the extent that they used to, but boy, when I used to go to Vegas, uh, when I had to travel through there for work and I was there every week, they were just pouring the drinks down your throat as long as you stayed at that table and kept, kept gambling because they knew your decision making was going down the hole. So the free booze was worth it. But yeah, so we all make all kinds of questionable decisions, financial decisions while drinking. Um, and then, you know, there's there's the other side of it too. I know you've talked a little bit about this, but there are, frust- do I want to call them frustration purchases? There are things that as the loved one, you're going to spend money that you wouldn't otherwise spend either. We hear people all the time talking about, you know, gosh, it was dinner time. And my spouse was drunk and I just took the kids and we got out of the house and we went out to eat. Yeah. Well, going out to eat is more expensive than eating in the house. For sure. 
And I or know... Or guilt purchases. Yeah, talk you know? about that. Yeah, like, after a particularly bad night or the kids and I would go off because you would be drinking while well, we would go to the movies. I mean, I always have enjoyed this uh, cheap movie theater, but still there's the movies and the popcorn and then... There was a Whole Foods that had an ice uh, gelato right next to the ice cream place. And, you know, so, like, right there, food is kind of a comfort for the other person, the loved one. But then that getting out of the house, well, getting out of the house means that you're probably going to go and spend something or go to Target. And you feel bad. And the kids are like, oh, we'd love to have this game or this toy or this outfit. And you feel bad as the loved one. So you kind of shower them with gifts. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. But it also, that's also more decisions weighing on your mind. You know, do I, do I or don't, do, ugh, do I or don't I? This wasn't what I had planned for the day. And here we are forced to vacate our house. And I got to figure out what to do and what money I'm going to spend. So more financial decisions just weighing on your mind. Then there's the, this, the fact that when we're in this cycle of, of drinking and trying to decide how much to drink and moderating and am I sober now or am I not sober? Um, we're also not reaching our potential. Our, you know, while we're in the category of finances, we're not reaching probably our earnings potential because we're not focused enough on work. And um, there are things we could be doing better to help ourselves and, and help our financial position Um if alcohol wasn't weighing on us so much. Um, you know, another decision that became heavier for us, I'm not, we talked a minute ago about when you would take the kids and leave the house, but what about when we as a family would be considering going out to eat? It's a heavier decision when you've got a drinker in the family because if if you and I just took our four kids and went out to eat and no one was going to drink, that's, you know, can be pretty affordable. You and I are big Chipotle fans. Um, we can get in and out of Chipotle for not much more than what it would cost to make that food at home. But if uh, if I was going to put two or three beers on top of that, mm-hmm. then you know it gets gets expensive fast. I can't tell you how many times that with me as the only drinker, our bar tab portion of the eating out equaled or, or nearly equaled the food tab. And that's both sad and pathetic, but it's also, it just makes another difficult decision that drinking brings in. If, you know, it's easy for us to say on a night when we're super stressed and tired and got a lot going on, just to run down to Chipotle because that's not going to cost a lot of money. But if you're going to run down to Chipotle and get some booze to go with it, um, it gets expensive and the decision gets harder. So, so yeah, just... Another of the many, many decisions. Um, And then, you know, you've got the more serious financial decisions that have to be sadly made sometimes. You know, decisions around wrecked cars or legal decisions if you've gotten yourself in a legal jam uh, related to alcohol. I mean, thankfully and luckily, uh, I never experienced that. But if, if you do, if you've got a DUI or something like that, I mean, that's a million more decisions you need to make and just stress on top of it and worry um, all kinds. And, and all of these have financial ramifications. But you're just taking your day that's already got a thousand normal decisions and you're adding a thousand more. 
it's it's um you want to talk about decision fatigue get yourself in some legal issues or or wreck a car and have to deal with fixing that um and then you know there's also I, I put this in the financial category as well we tend as drinkers um you know our our home maintenance time very 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 much overlaps with our drinking time so you might be one of those people that doesn't drink during work hours or doesn't drink at work but you're most likely a person that drinks on the weekends and the weekends is when you know you i don't know fix that hole in the wall or or make sure that the the lawn is taken care of or gosh if you've got that leaky pipe under the sink you can probably fix that yourself you're going to do that on the weekend. But when you're drinking, a lot of those things slide. We say, eh, I'll do that next weekend. Or, eh, it's not really leaking that bad. I'll wait till it gets worse. And um, we end up costing ourselves lots financially in the long run because we don't maintain the things that we have. And when we don't maintain them, the repair bills are more expensive later. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, like... We've had projects that we've done over the past five years that are things that could have been maintained, like you said, and taken care of, and then they wouldn't have been such a problem over, you know, the neglect of the, you know, 16 years we lived here. So. Yeah. Yeah, we're more yeah. we're more on top of things now than mm-hmm. we were back when I was drinking and you were dealing with the stress of my drinking and neither of us had... And, you know, the age of the kids helps that, you know, they're sure. older and they don't need to be attended to, but... But they also they... break things more at this... Because <laughs> they're bigger they're and huge. stronger. Just listening <laughs> to them walk around our, uh, our house is 106 years old and just listening to them walk around, I think, I think of tiles breaking and floorboards <laughs> Cracking. shattering under their weight. They're not monsters, but... They're not. But they're not small either. (laughs) Yeah, so all of that adds up financially, but it also adds up decision-making-wise and just weighs us down. Sex, Sherry. Let's talk about sex. Should we have sex? Um, Am I doing this because of an intimate connection, or is this just the disgusting conclusion to a night of drinking. I'm sure that that's something that has weighed on you, a decision that's weighed on you and gone through your mind. And I'm sure that more often than not, I'm only, I know our listeners love it when I put words in your mouth, but I know you don't want to talk about this. Oh, I just got to say, there was no intimate connection. (laughs) That wasn't a decision that That weighed on you. That was not a decision for a very long time. Yeah. It was a conclusion. Disgusting conclusion. Uh, Yes, go to sleep right afterwards. Leave me alone. Yeah. So you were often, uh, do I give in and do this or not Because based on whether I think it'll shut him up and make him pass out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or am I too angry that I can't even do that? But it was still a decision for you because I know, I mean, there were lots of times when, when we didn't over, you know, more often than not we did because I think you just explained why you made that decision, but... There were times when we didn't, you were just extra disgusted with me or extra tired or extra over me. Um, so there, it, it wasn't an automatic is what I'm trying to say. There was yeah. still always a decision to be made. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, all, that just adds to the, the pile of decisions. And then there's the quitting drinking decisions. Ugh. 
do I do in, in I've, I've decided I'm an alcoholic and I need to quit and I, I've tried on my own and I've relapsed uh, so how so they say you need to get help well what the hell does that mean I need help great uh, who's gonna help me am I gonna go to an inpatient treatment center and spend <laughs> in many cases tens of thousands of dollars on that or can I find an outpatient um, situation that might work for me do I need one-on-one -on -one individual therapy and the answer to that is yes but do I need one-on-one -on -one individual therapy um, am I going to tell anyone or am I going to keep this a secret even though I'm in I've decided to get sober and I'm in treatment you know there's there's all these laws about privacy and health privacy so can I get away with just telling my HR department and then everyone else in my company is going to know I'm on a leave of absence but they're not going to know why and then how am I going to deal with that because some of these people are my friends so even though they legally can't ask me they're going to ask me they're going to notice I wasn't there for a month so how you know how do I deal with my coworkers? Um, am I going to tell anyone? What about the neighbors? Uh, gosh, I want to keep this a secret. I don't want anyone to know of my, you know, my alcoholism. But how am I going to how am I going to keep this a secret? Does my loved one need recovery? Boy, that's something that most of us alcoholics never process. But the answer to that is yes. Your loved one does need recovery of his or her own, and. Uh, figuring that out is super important for the longevity and the success of the relationship as well as for that person. We we all, regardless of which side of the street you're on, in an alcoholic situation, you both need recovery if, if you're going to return to health. Um, here's one, Sherry, is forever too big. So many people that I talk to in early sobriety and, you know, and people write about this. I mean, this is a very common thing. Um, that's why the mantra of Alcoholics Anonymous is so well known one day at a time. Because this idea that I'm quitting drinking forever is just that's too big of a concept, too daunting, too scary. So a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting around thinking about forever and stressing about forever and trying to make a decision. Can I commit to not drinking forever or not. And if if you can't, and your alternative is one day at a time, then every single day, you've got to wake up and make the decision that I'm not going to drink today. And I'm not advocating necessarily for either one of those paths. For me, the permanence was comforting to say, like you said earlier when you were talking about the Gretchen Rubin podcast, if I just say no, as opposed to how much, that's easier for me than trying to moderate. So I'm just going to say, I don't drink anymore. That's out of my life. I'm not saying I was immediately successful. I certainly had my share of relapses. But that for me is easier than every day waking up and making the decision, mm -hmm. I'm not going to drink today. But either one of those routes, there's a lot of time in your brain spent making that decision and sticking to that decision. So the decision um, around drinking and is forever too big is a huge one. How on earth can I socialize? Boy, that is one that really locks us up in early sobriety. And, you know, you and I have said for years now, Sherry, that our strong recommendation is take a year off from socializing. A year off? That's so long. Do I sound like I'm trying to do... Who's... Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan, having my own voices. I love Jim Gaffigan. 
I'm not. That wasn't the intent, but it does. It did make me think of him. Um, how can I take a whole year off from socializing? I'm a social creature. I like to get out there. I like to be with my friends. But I'm here to tell you that is the danger zone in your first year of sobriety when you're trying to heal your neurotransmitter function and trying to get the old patterns out of your life and replaced with new patterns. Stay out of the bar. Stay away from the booze for that first year. And I can't tell you how much stress and pressure and decision-making that puts on you when you know there's this work function or this neighborhood function. These are your good friends. And you're not, in many cases, in my case certainly, I wasn't telling anyone that I was an alcoholic that was in sobriety. I was keeping that a secret. So they just knew I was blowing them off and not attending the functions anymore. Um, oh, do those decisions weigh on you? And there's a side of that for you too, right, Sherry? Because you were avoiding people because you didn't want me to find out about neighborhood parties for fear that I would go and overindulge, right? Yeah. I did. Yeah. I did. But yeah, it, would, it was troubling and it was sad because, um, you know, I didn't want to miss out on the functions, but most of the time there was just a no from both of us that... We were busy, but I remember, like, the one of the times that you tried to quit drinking, you were just trying to kind of pretend like it wasn't a big deal, and, you know, the struggles or the pressure or the caving in or how whatever you want to say, like, was just so much for you and agony mm-hmm. that it was just easier this time around just to be like, no, we're not doing anything like this. No it, temptations. It's the way to go. I'm 100% convinced. It's it's back to the point we made about yes or no as opposed to how much. Mm-hmm. If you just don't put yourself in that situation, you know, you take away all the temptation. So, you know, do I want to say how much temptation am I willing to handle? Well, I'll go to this neighborhood function, but I won't go to the bar after if some of them go. Um that's just too many decisions. Don't go at all, and then you don't have to face the temptation. You don't have to... to well, and you're battling with some of your self-esteem, too. And 100%. so having having to, like, have conversations or say no, like, it just is a big... Each one of those yeah. embarrasses you. Yeah. I was... I'm yeah. Saying was no just... to this person who offered me a drink. Oh, now I feel no, like a loser in front of that person. And someone else offers me a drink. Oh, no, I'm not drinking. Oh, why not? Yeah. I'm just not right now. I can feel bad about myself for that conversation. Well, and then if you you tell them a little story, like, oh, I'm on medication, then there's a lie, and it just, it just, like, gets black inside you and... Absolutely. Now, now you and I, we've talked about this. We're proponents of there are those situations that you have, that you can't get out of. There's a work thing you have to be at. Or, you know, it's your family and it's Christmas time. You're not going to avoid your family at Christmas time, even though they're all heavy drinkers. There are situations you're going to be in and telling those little white lies, in in my opinion, is acceptable. Mm-hmm. If you say I'm on medication and I can't drink right now and that gets you through early sobriety, then good for you. I think, I think there's forgiveness for lies like that. Uh, but yeah, but not putting yourself in the situation where you've got to tell them, Tell, say things like that, um, avoiding those situations at, at really at almost all costs, I think is is really important. So yeah, just stay away from all those added decisions. And then here's a big one, a huge one, 
if you're we're talking about quitting decisions, if you're in that early sobriety stage, both you and your loved one are are probably spending a lot of time trying to decide how can we fix this relationship. Because if you're anything like Sherry and I, at least me, I thought the sobriety would fix everything. And once I got into early sobriety and I realized the relationship was getting worse, not better, whoa, now all of a sudden there's a ton of added decisions to be made because um, it didn't go as I had planned. So now how do I pull this thing up before, you know, before we crash? Uh, how do we save this relationship? Because sobriety didn't do it. So lots of decisions to be made about fixing the relationship. So these are the decisions that are made when we're actively drinking, when we're attempting sobriety, when we're in that early sobriety period. All of these added decisions that that add to the decision fatigue and make sobriety itself infinitely more difficult. What about when you get into long-term sobriety and you're not it, it it literally eliminates thousands of decisions. Um, all of the things we've just talked about go away. I don't have to worry about how much I'm going to drink at the neighborhood party when I'm not drinking at all. It's just, I don't even think about it. You don't have to worry, Sherry, about how much money you're going to spend when you and the kids have to flee the house because your your husband's a drunk asshole. Um, it... it all of the stuff we said goes away in long-term sobriety. And we all know about the health benefits of long-term sobriety, the the physical health benefits. You know, probably we can lose some weight. Um, we're not doing damage to our liver anymore. Um, our skin probably gets better. These are all the physical, and there's many, many, many more physical benefits to long-term sobriety. We've talked a lot about the neurological benefits, right? The um, the brain hijacking that takes place, the neurotransmitter hijacking when when we're drinking, the only thing that brings us pleasure eventually is the alcohol and breaking free from that and getting our pleasure neurotransmitters to fire properly again and let us find pleasure in everyday life and not just depend on our substance to bring it. That those neurological benefits are, are obvious to long-term sobriety. Behavioral benefits. Is it better now, Sherry, here walking around when your husband isn't um, half the time acting like a drunken fool? It you... absolutely is. It's more steady. Yeah. More calm. More fun. I guess calm and fun seem counteractive, but more fun. You know, um, lighter in the house. We don't have to worry about setting you off. I think the calm and fun, calm and fun, makes a lot of sense because you're able to be prepared to have fun because you're not always on pins and needles waiting to see how I'm going to act or am I going to drink or not or am I going to drink too much. You're open to whatever happens because you don't have a fear about whatever's going to happen. Yeah. So calm and fun, calm and fun. It sounds like I'm saying common fun, like common. like there's a C-O-N-M-O. normal, yes. often there's the normal fun, of, and then there's the really good fun, yeah, the uncommon fun, the uncommon fun, yeah, yes, but calm, um, fun, and fun, yeah. So the behavioral benefits of long-term sobriety are obvious. The relational benefits, ooh, 
kind of goes right in there with that common fun we like to have. It's uh, it's a lot easier to improve your marriage when you don't have this poison that's toxifying it. So just the fact that, um, you know, sobriety doesn't fix anything, but it is the prerequisite. Once we're in long-term sobriety, we've been able to do massive amounts of repair work on our relationship. And dare I say, it's in the best shape it's ever been. Certainly better than even the very beginning when we were madly in love with each other. (laughs) Because even before I was addicted to alcohol, alcohol was toxifying our relationship even back then with my outbursts of idiocracy. So she's nodding. The, the marriage is better. She's, she's over Yeah, I didn't yeah. know I was supposed to say anything. Well, you, yeah. you didn't have to. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's pretty early in the morning when we're recording this. Um, I don't know if you can yeah. tell I'm struggling for words sometimes. <laughs> and Sherry's plenty happy to sit over there quietly. But this is when we had a window to record. So we're recording mental health benefits. This is big. Mental health benefits of long-term sobriety. Fewer decisions equals better decisions, Sherry. When you're not making these thousands and thousands of uh, drinking decisions, early sobriety decisions, should I or shouldn't I be in early sobriety decisions, all of that stuff that we've spent the last 48 minutes talking about, when you're making fewer decisions, you're making better decisions because you don't have the decision fatigue. And guess what? If you don't have as much decision fatigue at the end of the night because you haven't spent all this time thinking about alcohol, am I or am I not an alcoholic, Um, when am I going to drink, what am I going to drink, how much am I going to drink, am I going to piss my loved one off when I drink, if you don't spend all day thinking about those, there's a chance that you can resist that bowl of ice cream at the end of the night. Yes. There's a chance you can't because you have to make all the other regular decisions. Some days are just ice cream days. There are other decisions that, yeah, that have to be made and some days are ice cream days, but you've got a fighting chance of resisting at the end. So life is better this way. It 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 there it's amazing to me how you and I both ever fit all these decisions that we've just spent the last 50 minutes talking about into our daily lives because there really are literally thousands of decisions that we have to make every day just in normal life unrelated to alcohol. So when you take all of those decisions and you add you add the alcohol decisions on top. I mean, you just don't have, you don't give yourself a fighting chance to have a successful, meaningful, productive, healthy life. It's just too much. It's, it's overwhelming. So. Definitely sounds like it when we went through that list. Yep. I'd rather be on this side. I'd rather be underwhelming. (laughs) Be an underwhelmer. Be an underwhelmer. Thanks for talking about this, Sherry. Absolutely. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.